Carter from the belt to the plate. A swing and a miss. And that's the winner. That's the winner. A World Series winner for the Cardinals. Smith corks one in the right down the line. It may go. Welcome to That's a Winner Podcast. I am Ryan Jenkins. Be sure to follow us on Twitter at That's a Winner Pod. Joining me as always is Josh Brown, sounding a little bit different this week because he's in quarantine with COVID, so the sound is a little different this week. We apologize. But good news is, joining us this week is Katie Wu with The Athletic. Thanks for joining us, Katie. Hey guys, how are you? Well, I'm better than Josh, obviously, but yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, Katie's I'm with making the, it. I'm making it. Just quarantining. Yeah, Katie's with the Athletic and, and Cardinals Insider, or all about reporting on Cardinals. She does all that stuff. One of my favorite follows on Twitter. Uh, it's at Katie J Wu, if I'm not mistaken, right? That is correct. I like the, my favorite part about you is you're a reporter, but you also have some personality, which doesn't always happen when you're talking about <laughs> reporters and, and Twitter. But um, let's start with uh, like more of a personal question. So some of the biggest off-season time, this is your fir- was your first year with the Cardinals, right? The past season? It was. Yeah. So the biggest story. Yeah. It was an uh, interesting first year, I'm sure. Us Cardinals fans um, have a lot to probably tell you about in the previous years, but this one's been a weird one. But in the, in the off-season, some of the biggest breaking news of the year was obviously – Ali Marmol being hired. And um, then you also got a quote from Schilt whenever after he was fired and no one else got those. So on the more personal level, you know, how did it feel your first year in there's guys in this market that have been doing it for 30 plus years. And you were kind of the one that got the scoops uh, on those big stories first. Um, you know, I think that's a, that's a good question because as reporters, you know, we're supposed to be able to have inside knowledge of the situation and be able to like to brief fans and, and all of that. But I will say, and I think that this is, I'm not downplaying, you know, breaking news by, by any means, but I think we get so caught up in like the Twitter and the like, you know, the social media aspect of everything where it can kind of get blown out of proportion. Um, so for me, you know, I, I wanted to be a sports writer to be a writer. And the reporting thing was just kind of second nature. However, when something as wild as the first three weeks of the Cardinals offseason happens, it's just kind of in every reporter's nature to try to figure it out. I always say if you're surprised by news coming out of the organization that you cover, you're probably not fully doing your job right. However, I don't think a single reporter had any inkling that Mike Schultz was going to get fired um, up until maybe an hour before that press conference, it really was that abrupt. So for me, it was just kind of like, well, what is actually going on? Because the Cardinals front office isn't going to say much in those press conference settings. We know that. Um, That's not really where news gets broken anyway. Um, For me, it was less of like, yeah, I've been here for a year. But as we all know, as Cardinals fans know, it was a really long and unusual year for this organization. So it was just like, of course, of course it's going to end this way. 
Um, let me just try to figure out what's going on and, and convince people to talk to me. And really what I've learned, and by no means that I am better in reporter, is if you can prove that you can be trusted, if you show up every day, if you are doing the work and, and you're putting in the same amount of work ethic as the people playing on the field are, of course, it's two different job descriptions, but the work ethic is you, you have to work really hard. People respect that. So I think for me, it was just like, okay, well, she's not going to go away because I can be rather annoying. Um, you know, let's keep pressing and see what, if anything, we can find out. Yeah, Katie. And, and like you said, with Shilt, surprising. I don't think anybody probably knew, but but Mo, after those exit interviews uh, at the end of the week there, the last week of the season. But you talked a little bit just about why you got into this. Maybe give us a brief kind of overview of your of your journey uh, into this world. You're from the Bay Area, right? So give some of our listeners who might not know you that well just a little bit about your journey. Yeah, of course. Um, so, yeah, as, as we said, this is my first year uh, covering the Cardinals. It was also my first year as a beat reporter. I graduated from Arizona State in 2018 with a degree in sports journalism. And I always knew that I wanted to be a baseball beat writer. And I always said, you know, I don't, I don't care about the team. I don't care about the organization. I'll cover anyone, anywhere. I just felt like this is the job that I was meant to do. So I was lucky enough right after college to get into the now defunct MLB.com internship program. That's where I met uh, current Cardinals beat writer and like my colleague in competition for MLB.com, Zach Silver. We were both interns there. Um, Amy Rogers, who covered the Cardinals prior, she was also an intern in that class. Um, and I got San Diego. So right off the bat, I had a fantastic location, not so fantastic team. Um, and I learned a lot. So, and it was uh, pretty evident after the internship that this was, you know, just kind of further solidified what I wanted to do. And it was to be a beat writer. Then for the next two years, I, I still stayed at MLB.com and I was working on minor league features and top prospect evaluations. I thought that was a really good way to kind of develop, develop a side of the game that I wasn't too familiar with and get to know some of these up and coming names. Uh, for example, we did a lot of stuff on Dylan Carlson when he was a, a prospect. And now it was like when I was named to this position, I could recognize like four names and they were Adam Wainwright, Yadier Molina, Dylan Arnauto, and Dylan Carlson, right? So it kind of escalated really quickly. Um, I've always been a fan of the athletic. And when I saw that there was an opening for the Cardinals in St. Louis, you know, I, I backtracked what I always said. I don't care about the organization. Sure, growing up in the Bay Area, I wasn't too familiar with the NL Central. Um, and I didn't really know much about St. Louis. All I knew was what pretty much everyone knows about the Cardinals is they win a lot. And they're a very respected, highly professional organization. Uh, I thought it'd be a fantastic place to go. And I luckily enough was, was chosen and it's been kind of a, a whirlwind first year again, as we talked about, uh, I was never bored. There were certainly a lot of learning curves along the way, but I wouldn't change anything about the last three years, which is daunting, of course, with the 2020, you know, the lack of the minor league season in 2020, I wasn't even sure if I would still be in the industry come this year. So to go from pretty much not having a job in 2020 to having what I believe is one of the most valuable beats in baseball was just surreal. And it still doesn't feel real after a full season of doing it. Well, yeah, that's, that's pretty awesome to hear. Um, and you know, you're doing an awesome job. I think I told you that via Twitter um, messenger, <laughs> but it, it it is a uh, very, it's, it's hard to put into words, but it's very uh, different to hear a woman's perspective Um in baseball, right? So is that play into whenever you came in, uh, how difficult that might be or how different that would be compared to a lot of your colleagues are men? Um, you know, it was growing up in the Bay area and covering sports fair, I'd walk in a press box and there's a fair amount of diversity just based on the region. You know, like when you're in San Francisco and Oakland, that's, 
kind of a hub. There's a lot of women sports writers, especially baseball, based in the Bay Area that I grew up reading. Um, now in the Midwest, I am often the only woman or female reporter, uh, like beat writer in the press box, pretty much in the division. I can think of a couple more, um, but it, it's pretty rare. So that was a weird thing for me to adjust to personally, but I can say, and you know, I get I'm only one person's perspective. So my perspective definitely is it, essentially that, right? It's just one person's perspective, but I was treated very fairly and respectfully by all of my male colleagues, um, the organization. It, it was really welcoming, you know, because you can get, when you're moving somewhere regardless, regardless of where you're going and, and where you're from, you can be a little hesitant about a new culture and, and a new area in which you don't know about. And I was like, well, what is, what is the St. Louis Cardinals organization going to think about a, a woman's beat writer, right? I think that's just like a, a natural question that we have and they were awesome I never felt like I was treated any different they made a very seamless transition like as easy as they could be and again um I've always felt supported and I've always felt respected um I don't definitely don't want to be treated differently because I'm a woman I don't want to be prioritized I don't want people to be like oh well you know we can yell at them because they're men and we like don't like if you write an article if a male reporter writes an article and a player doesn't like it they they often have words, right? I don't want players to shy away if I write something they don't like from saying it because I'm a woman. I think I just want to be treated fairly in all regards. And luckily enough, in my situation here, I feel like I have been. And you, you mentioned uh, San Francisco. So obviously that's where you, you grew up. And I remember I went to um, that ballpark in 08, I do believe. And they have a, a woman announcer that you talk about, the woman um, in stadium announcer. Um, yeah, that I remember that. Um, so did you grow up uh, a Giants fan or did you, I mean, a baseball fanatic or is that just, you know, is that just instilled into you at a different time? Yeah, I definitely grew up a Giants fan. Um, my dad grew up an A's fan and he really tried hard to convince me, but I grew up in the age where Barry Bonds was hitting baseball from the ocean every day. So that made for a very easy uh, decision for me. I will say, and I know that Cardinals fans um, maybe are probably not too fond of the years of 2010, 2012, and 2014, especially 2012, when I'll go ahead and say that the Cardinals were the better team in that championship series. Yeah, I was at, um, I was at some of those some, games. It yeah. was rough. Yeah, you know, I've, I've heard it was rough. I didn't share those same emotions. But I, <laughs> I will say, um, when talking to Matt Carpenter throughout the season, uh, and it's just funny how things go and, and it's like such a small world. I told him, I was like, in 2012, I watched these big playoff games with my dad and we couldn't stand you. Like you were so good and you struck fear into Giants fans in that playoff series. And I remember really not liking you. And now here we are. And I think you're right. Um, <laughs> it's just kind of funny that it all like, you know, over a 10 year period kind of went full circle. Um, but yeah, definitely a Giants fan. I will say now that I'm a, you know, a reporter, I really don't have any rooting interest for anyone. Of course, I want the people that I cover to do well. Um, and I want them to be successful and healthy. However, what I, the only thing I really root for these days are sub three hour games. And I can confidently say <laughs> I'm, I'm not really big on who wins or who loses. As long as that game is like 258, that's a win for me personally. 
Katie, I can feel you there. I covered I covered high school sports for a year for a local newspaper and covering bas- you know basketball through the week, football on Friday nights. I could totally feel you on, on just the games getting done as quick as possible. And 2012 is funny, you know. I think I think a lot of fans probably hated the Cardinals just like you did because it was a year after Pujols left, and what were we doing that deep in the playoffs again, right? Um, right. But I can tell I can tell you that Barry Zito still still haunts my dreams at least. Oh, the best. That was such a miraculous game. <laughs> I can literally remember that. That's not miraculous. I think you got the wrong words there. But um, <laughs> Miraculous for 15-year-old me. <laughs> well, um, I mean, we could talk about Cardinals or other things, but, you know, I have had some strong points, and I'd like to hear your feedback as a Giants, you know, lifer. Is Buster Posey a Hall of Famer? Okay, I'm going to answer this, but before I want to, I want to preface this with, what I say here, and I don't think that you guys think this, but maybe you do. Whatever I say about Buster Posey, we do not need to make into a competition with Yadier Molina. No, I, I agree. Is, right? Okay, good, I agree. good, good. Well, to be honest, whenever I put it on Twitter and I talked about the points of why he's not, I think, um, I did not mention Yadi one time in any of the reasons I'm so why. Proud. Because that yeah. he, it's yeah. irrelevant to, yeah. to they're not comparable. It doesn't matter if he is or he isn't. Both are, or both aren't. I was asking on the merits of that of today. Whenever he retired, was he actually a, a, a Hall of Famer? Because I'll let you answer first, and I'll, I'll give you my reasons after that. Go ahead. Yeah, of course. Uh, my my answer is easy, and it would be this way regardless if I grew up a Giants fan or not. Um, absolutely. You look at the pedigree, you look at the, his impact on the sport, you look at his impact on the organization, and you just look at his, his resume. Without a doubt, I think he's a Hall of Famer. Well, talking about his resume part, so the parts that I disagree on is, you know, no no one has got into the uh, Hall of Fame with, with under 2,000 hits since the 1960s. Right. That's one part of it. But the, all the writers, this is what was my biggest hiccup with it all was all the writers there's You can Google and there's tons of things out there of in June and July. Tim Kirkchen being one of them, which is highly respected uh, with ESPN. talked about, yeah, you know, he's going to be if he plays three to five more years, like all of it, everything's there. Everything's going to be. And then he retires and everyone's like, yeah, he's a Hall of Famer. But just a few months earlier, they're like, yeah, at some point. No, that's fair. I think that was when everyone was under the impression that he would be around. But if you really, and you know, it's easy to, to think he's going to be around when you're on the outside or on a different division or a different coast and just checking in on these, these West Coast games. You just look at the season Buster Posey's having and, and you think, of course he's going to be back. But he, and if you, this, I thought the Giants writers from every company did a really good job of conveying this throughout the season. He never specifically said he was coming back. There wasn't, you know, it was kind of bold to assume that he would return. So I think everyone was under the assumption that he was going to come back just based on the numbers and the performance and what he was doing and the way the Giants were trending. But he never once confirmed that. This was a contract year all along for him. And I thought the West Coast side of the media did a really good job of conveying, you know, hey, he might not play. So what does his resume look like right now? Because that's ultimately what we're going to be judging him on. Yeah, and Ryan and I had had some interesting uh, conversation on this with our last episode. And obviously, I mean, it wouldn't surprise me if he got the votes. You talk about the pedigree, 2010, 2012, 2014, those championships being a part of that. I mean, people are gonna, that's going to stick out the most, right? And his peak, probably three to five years offensively there. I mean, one of the best hitting catchers. I think a little bit, I lean a little bit more towards Ryan's opinion, just with the innings caught, playing first base some here and there. Uh, I mean, a lot more than, than you know, most catchers like Yadi. But it's just, it's an interesting debate, right? Threw that I mean, in Yachty, there, didn't you? 
Well, had, Yachty, had him engine Yachty. <laughs> well, Yachty's just in another conversation of his own, just the, 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 the term of, of how he's still catching so many innings at 39 years yeah, old. Yeah, no I mean, kidding. You don't, you, you don't no see kidding. that. Yeah, it's interesting. Um, and I, I think that there's probably a solid case to be made for, for whether he's whether Posey's in or whether he's not. Do I think he's first ballot? No. But do I think he'll get in just based on how the sport is trending and, and how hard it is these days as, as the sports continue to modernize to be consistently good for such a long amount of time? And, I, and again, I'm not comparing Posey to anyone, but that's what I think makes Yachty's tenure in St. Louis so great. Wayno's tenure in St. Louis so great is because they are continuously good. Even with their setbacks, they've all been able to all three have been able to come back and be consistently good. And I think that's ultimately what's going to the posing the hall of fame. Yeah. Uh, and so one thing I wanted to jump into is we kind of transition here to the Cardinals. I know you were at the AFL, I believe a couple of weeks ago, right? Yeah. So you got to cover some of that. And obviously, I mean, anyone who's a fairly diehard Cardinals fan has paid attention to this last year. They know names like Lars Newbar from seeing him on the team this year. They, they've heard of Nolan Gorman. But tell us a little bit about this guy, Juan Yepes, and what makes him so dynamic. And is he, a, is he a legit DH option next year? I would think so. I think the Cardinals, and this is just coming from, you know, right after the Arizona Fall League, I went straight to the GM meetings and was able to talk with a bunch of executives and agents about how the Cardinals are shaping up. So I got a lot of, you know, inside the organization opinions and outside the organization opinions. And the Cardinals, they are really high on their minor league depth, you know, which is something it's hard to build a farm system when you are continually, continuously not picking in the top 10 of the draft. That's a good problem to have, right? You don't necessarily want right. to be picking in the top 10 of the draft. That usually means your major league teams did not do well. Um, but the, their wave of prospect talent is all peaking right now. And one yes is one of those guys. I and mean, he, he can hit, he's a hit tool. He's trying to refine his defense. That's why he went to the AFL. He can, he is most comfortable at first base, but obviously the Cardinals are not going to displace Paul Goldschmidt. He can play a little bit of third, but the Cardinals seem to be pretty covered with Nolan Arenado and, you know, everybody else in the infield. And he's trying a little bit of outfield, but again, Cardinals have that outfield covered too. So I think if we move towards a universal DH, which seems possible but isn't confirmed, Juan Yepes is the internal option to be the designated hitter. Um, he's really surprised the organization, uh, especially in this last 20, like his breakup season in 2021. They're high on him. The Cardinals have made it very clear, um, and, and I get a lot of questions about, like, well, why would – in the offseason, we all, we're all agreeing, you know, there's probably three avenues they can look to, to be better at. It's starting pitching. Uh, possibly upgrading their middle infield and it's getting a bench bat. Well, if you have a bench bat that's young and promising and there's an open role for, why not give these guys a chance to see if you actually need to pursue and spend money to get one when you could already have one. So I think, you know, they're going forward. The Cardinals front office is putting all of their chips in towards improving the pitching. And we saw how disaster it was in 2021. That makes sense. They're looking internally. I'm not saying they're not going to go, get a free agent or make some trades here. But they're looking at their internal options on who can be a, a valuable bench bat and who can play the middle infield. And I think Juan Yepes has literally hit his way to the top of consideration for that bench bat role. Do you, a lot of people think, you know, it should be or should look at as Nolan Gorman, but I have always thought, and we talked to Mark Saxon on one of our episodes as well, and he agreed that it's probably not going to be Gorman. And do you see it mo- mostly as Juan Yepes, right? I do. 
Um, I don't, I, I think Gorman will see substantial playing time in 2022. It's kind of hard to really predict when he's coming, when the CBA negotiations are, are so unclear. We only know like service time or, or if that's going to be tweaked at all, right? But if you put all that to the side, I think that the Cardinals might deter away from the free agent market because there's so many valuable middle infielders on their staff. You know, I thought Emmanuel Sosa had a fantastic year. Tommy Edmond, probably one of the most underrated players in baseball, very well deserving of that gold glove. A, a surprise, right? Because, you know, you just assume Colt Long is going to get it. So for Tommy Edmond to win just shows how much attention he was starting to receive nationally. Um, I, I think, Paul, the organization, the young, they are convinced that his 2021 offensive woes were a fluke. And I know that's a controversial statement, um, but they feel confident in a, in a platoon with those three. And Nolan Gorman can make that four. You know, this is a guy that can play third base, but learned second base last year. Um, he is, again, surprised as a hit tool. But if you can use Nolan Gorman as a utility option or as a platoon option, as new manager Ali Marmola said, you know, that they would like to incorporate platoons, that makes sense too. So I think, again, I do think that there's a place in the, on the 2022 roster for both Juan Yepes and Nolan Gorman. But I think their roles are being more defined based on what the team needs internally. Yeah, and you, since you're fairly new here, um, yeah, I told everyone multiple times they're going to get their hearts broken by Mo and thinking we're going to go and spend big money at a shortstop position. That's just not the way the Cardinals do it, and never has been. You know, they'll make big trades, obviously, for Nolan Arenado and Paul Goldschmidt, mm-hmm. but it's usually not signing the big, the big flashy names out there. It's just not usually what happens, and it usually gets people um, expecting a lot, and then not, nothing a lot happens uh, down the, in the actual free agent market. You touched on Tommy, yeah. Tommy Edmond, so I just had a question. I don't know if you've seen it. I haven't seen anywhere relevant. How about that? I haven't seen anyone with any name, a cloud behind their name, but talking about trading Tommy Edmond because he's at his highest level, you know, his his, his uh, value may never be any higher. I mean, do you have anything to, you know, talk about that or have you heard any of that? Uh, no, I have not. I have not heard any kind of talk about Tommy Edmond being traded. Uh, the Cardinals organization is, is really high on him. They were really impressed. I remember talking to Mo in September in the midst of that 17-game winning streak about things that went right. And he, the first person he mentioned, I mean, he could have gone with anyone. He could have gone with Tyler O'Neill or Harrison Bader or Paul Goldschmidt. And he said, I think it was Tommy Edmonds figuring out how to be a, a productive leadoff hitter again. And I think the value that the club pays on Tommy Edmonds is much higher than maybe the national attention envision him going anywhere his value sure is high but i think it's higher within the organization again if they elect a platoon in the middle infield it just sounds like they might now and I, I have a question for you guys because maybe you know i i understand how the cardinals work i understand this is you know when they upgrade it through big trades they're not big spenders but if i'm i was thinking to myself if i was a fan of this team and i saw the pitching fall apart like and and just completely derail the season so early would I be more comfortable in the front office saying we're going to spend money, but we're going to spend money on pitching over pursuing a, a one player that is a dynamic player. I mean, don't get me wrong. Corey Seager, Carlos Correa, Trevor Sawyer are dynamic players. But I was thinking if I was a fan, I might be more inclined looking at how the pitching unfolded last year to, to agree with the front office and say, yeah, that seems to be where the team should put the most money. But again, I don't know. I'm asking for, for opinions. Yeah, there. you know, I would think, I don't speak for all of Cardinal Nation, but I would think if uh, in some of our polls we've had on Twitter, I think mostly if you're talking about spending $20 million a year, you know, if we're talking about 
possibly that Stroman market, uh, some of those areas, obviously with the big signings we've seen recently of overpaying of pitchers. If you're talking about that kind of money, I think most people would say, I'd rather see it go to a bat that's going to play most days instead of every five. I don't know, Josh, what do you think? Yeah, we've had debate on this. And look, I'm in the opinion, like, why not both? If you can make the deals (laughs) for both work, right? Obviously, it's not going to be, you're not going to get a Corey Seager or a Carlos Correa and Marcus Stroman. But I'm not totally convinced you couldn't get a guy like Trevor Story and Marcus Stroman. I mean, I think it just depends on how the market develops for them, right? And I wanted to talk a little bit more about the shortstop uh, position, Katie, and what you think. Because in my mind, there's just a few options here that the Cardinals really have to work with. And I want to get your opinion on what you think. They could they could keep DeYoung at shortstop um, with um, – um, Sosa, I'm sorry, <laughs> lost train of thought there. They can keep DeYoung at shortstop with Edmundo Sosa and kind of split time with them, play the hot hand a lot like they did this season, and keep Tommy over at second base, who was great defensively. I mean, you want a gold glove. Or you could move Tommy to shortstop, where I, I looked uh, last week, he actually logged more innings at shortstop in the minor leagues than any other position and did fine mm-hmm. there. He's comfortable there. And if they're really wanting Nolan Gorman to develop at second base defensively, you could, you know, if he makes it out of spring training and he's hitting well, you could go ahead and put him there and you can move Tommy to shortstop, maybe try to trade DeYoung and see what you could get for that. And that's six million off the books, right? And that's where you could give more money maybe to a pitcher like Stroman or a higher end guy if you're wanting to go that route. So for me, it's a couple of different things on the pitching side. If you're going to do that, if you're going to move Tommy to shortstop and put Gorman at second, then yeah, go hard after pitching and maybe overpay for a guy like Stroman. But I mean, Trevor Story's not going to get money like Corey Seager and Carlos Correa, don't you think? No, he's not. He's not. So what are I your thoughts? So I mean, if, if, if you can go get a guy like Trevor Story for, say, I don't know, 86 million over four years, about 20, 21 million a year, I mean, do you think that's worth the Cardinals to talk to with him about that? You know, I'm in the minority here, but I don't think Trevor Story gets a long, multi year deal. I think Trevor Story signs a one to two year deal. That, now, if that makes sense for the Cardinals, there, right? At one yep. year, that makes one, sense yeah. for the Cardinals. Yes, I agree. That makes sense for the Cardinals. And if Trevor Story, now you know, maybe I, I don't know. You know, I, I spent all my sadly all my energy on the Cardinals. I don't know what Trevor Story's actual market value is, but I don't think that he's in the same kind of tier just based on the season that he had. With Carlos Correa and Corey Seager and, and even Marcus Simeon, you know, like obviously those were those were all fantastic seasons for those guys. I if it's a one to two year deal, I think it's worth the Cardinals spending money. However, the Cardinals aren't just looking to add one arm to their rotation; they're looking to bolster their bullpen. They're lo- like when we say pitching, I think it's automatic to be just equate to the rotation. But both Mo and Gersh were very adamant in saying this isn't when we improve pitching. We're not talking about just a starter. You know, you can slot Wainwright in as number one and Jack Thornton as number two or flip them, you know, but I, I think Wainwright gets the edge just because he's Adam Wainwright. They're looking for a number three starter, right, to kind of slot in above Dakota Hudson and Miles Michaelis. And they're looking for a bunch of relief arms. That's why bringing back TJ McFarland is so ideal. I've heard that they are trying to bring back Luis Garcia. They need more bullpen arms as well because there's a lot of question marks regarding guys like Alex Reyes and Jordan Hicks and team is very high on Jake Woodford, but what, what can they realistically expect from him? So we, we look at all these ways to kind of expand the shortstop and, and what they have internally. But we have to keep in mind, it's not just one starter they're looking at. They're looking at revamping their pitching staff as a whole. 
So again, so much of this, it's so, I get so wrapped up in this and I'm sure you guys do because it's easy to, to wrap our heads and, and kind of expand on how this office is going to shake out. But we really don't know until the CBA negotiations kind of signify on December 1st where the sport is heading as well. So this is all a very fluid situation and it's really easy to map out something on November 16th and say, well, this is exactly what the Cardinals should do or this is what any team should do. But the fact of the matter is we don't know what the sport is going to look like in a couple of weeks. So it's really hard to pin down an exact blueprint of what a team should do. Do you think that the Cardinals make any moves before that deadline? Like any notable moves? Yeah, you know what? I wouldn't be surprised. Um, I think that if you are a free agent, like the NCJ McFarland case, where you don't want to wait out what could be a very slow and uh, unclear winter, you sign and you take what you have just to ease that burden off your shoulder. Um, I, I know that the Cardinals are looking at a lot of mid-rotation guys. Uh, Stephen Mass was formerly with the Mets. Nick Martinez, he was playing in Japan. So fit that role. I wouldn't be surprised if they just, since it's their biggest priority, try to nail something down before December 1st. But I also wouldn't be surprised if they wait a little bit and look for some clarity on the sport. It's, it's so weird. I kind of feel like we're in purgatory right now as, as a like baseball industry, as we wait to figure out what the sport is going to look like and how front offices are going to move forward. Um, but I, I think if the Cardinals are going to make a move, you know, what they're likely going to do before the December 1st kind of deadline is maybe add another mid-tier reliever, maybe Garcia, maybe somebody else. And I think the big moves will come after we kind of know what the CBA negotiations will look like. Yeah, this offseason is going to be so interesting. I mean, especially seeing if, if a flurry of moves happen before that, that deadline for the CBA, right? We, we had some action today. Jose Barrios, seven years, right. $131 million, which was kind of surprising when I saw that. Uh, Noah Syndergaard, $21 million with the Angels, which I think if any team was going to overpay him that, it was probably going to be the Angels because they need a lot of help yeah. in the rotation. Uh, so I get why they could take the flyer there. You know, they've got the money to spend. Um, but yeah, I mean, some of those names you threw out, Matt's is interesting to me, just, you know, a sinker ball, gra- a guy with good control, doesn't walk a lot of people. Right. I think That's he exactly would fit what in. They need. Yeah. I think he would fit in really well, but after some of these deals today, Katie, I'm like, man, is this, is this going to be an overpay market for pitching this year? Oh, you know, I think it's a fair question. I, I definitely think it's fair when you say, when you see the numbers and then you see what guys are fighting for, but I think if the Cardinals have learned anything from the 2021 season is maybe you have to overpay some guys, right? You, you can't have, you can't go into the 2022 season with the blueprints that you had in 2021 for the rotation. You just can't. You can't have too many question marks. Right now, the Cardinals have four starters that they're confident in. You know, Adam Wainwright is Adam Wainwright. Anyone that doubts Adam Wainwright at this point, that's on you. You should know better. Uh, <laughs> I, I don't think anyone is really like doubting Jack Flurry's health. I think 2021 was a, a huge outlier for a guy that was coming off a 2020 shortened season. And let's remember how awkward it was for the Cardinals in 2020. You know, they had so many stoppages in their season, so many COVID outbreaks. Dakota Hudson looks great, as is Miles Michaelis towards the end of the season. Cardinals are really optimistic about that. But there's still plenty of question marks. And they went into the 2021 season with four starters they were convinced and plenty of question marks. And what happened? Uh, by, I don't know, June, they had like two and a half starters in their rotation. They were just desperate for guys that could throw strikes. I think what's going to give the Cardinals the upper edge where they won't have to overpay as much as other teams is look at the defense. You have five gold glovers. You have a defense that was consistently credited by every single pitcher onto why they were able to reinvent themselves. Like John Lester, 
like uh, Jay Happ, like CJ McFarland, like Luis Garcia. And you have a very pitching-friendly ballpark in Bush Stadium. I think those are two factors that are going to entice free agents to maybe take the lesser amount or maybe the Cardinals don't have to pay as much because pitchers will benefit immensely from the field and from the defense behind them. Yeah, before we move on from pitching here, two guys you mentioned a little bit earlier that I wanted to ask you about are Alex Reyes and Jordan Hicks. Now, obviously, those two guys, it sounds like, are going to get a shot at, at being starting pitchers. Now, I know Alex has been wanting to do that, right? He was a prospect coming up in mm-hmm. the system as a starter, and hopefully he can do that next season. But but I think a lot of fans, me included, were surprised to see Jordan Hicks in there with that. Do you know or what's your, your take on Jordan Hicks wanting to start? Was that is that more from Moe's side wanting him to try that, or did he come to them and say, hey, I want to try this out? Because he didn't get much AFL action either, did he? No, he did not. He uh, elected to leave the AFL after two appearances because he said he felt great. This was Hicks going to the front office and saying he wants to try starting. Um, now, when I say that Alex Reyes and Jordan Hicks are going to, you know, potentially going to get looked at potentially being starters, I think a lot of people skipped over the word potential. And, right. uh, like, just, you know, it was a, it's a, a theory. They're going to test it out. I'm in no way saying, you know, Alex Reyes is going to be a fourth starter and here's Jordan Hicks. It's can these guys be starters? Is there a way to maybe work in a, a piggyback option every now and then or go to a six-man rotation when they need to? You know, the Cardinals seem to be a little bit less moving away from things that are so traditional. You know, they very rarely used a piggyback option in seasons prior. They very rarely used openers. I think when they say they're going to look at Alex Reyes and Jordan Hicks as starters, it's, you know, can they be openers at some point? Can Jordan Hicks go and, and do three innings and a piggyback start? What What's the max they can do? What can we expect from them? If they're not going to be built up to be traditional seven-inning starters, if at all. It's just a way of the Cardinals making sure that they cover all of their bases twice after failing to do so in, the, in spring training last year and avoiding what ultimately derailed their entire season where they were only able to make the postseason thanks to a miraculous never heard of, we'll probably never see again, 17-game winning streak. So, again, I, I really want to stress, and this is something I'll continue to do so as we move through the offseason, that when they're saying they're looking at Alex Reyes and Jordan Hicks as potential starters, it's very highly unlikely that it's starters as we traditionally know that role to be. Right, and that's that's what I that's what I figured too when I heard that, right? Because they're not the type of control guys that we've seen from some of these other pitchers they picked up, like Lester or McFarlane or some of those these guys. So, when you said piggybacking, that's what I thought the only way that that could work with them. I mean, maybe you have Alex Reyes as an opener for three or four innings if he's doing really well, and then you can bring Hicks in for two, and then you've only got three innings left to cover. Right, and the Cardinals bullpen was essentially pretty good towards the end of the season. So I think it's a man. It's a lot about it's so basic, and we kind of had a laugh about this at the GM meeting. Really, all the Cardinals front office is looking at are, are guys that can throw strikes. You can have this pitcher-friendly ballpark, right? You can have this historic electric defense. None of that matters if your pitcher cannot hit the strike zone. If you're continuously walking guys or giving up hits or, or not, you know, not being an effective pitcher, what you have that would ultimately benefit a staff doesn't really matter. So, again, when you're looking at starters, there's going to be like 10 or 11 options going into spring training on who could start. They're essentially competing for one role in the rotation, which is likely going to be filled by a free agent anyway. 
So it's less of, you know, who's going to be a traditional starter for this organization and who can they experiment with and tinker with and do something that's less traditional to fill those spots when they need to, because not all five of the pitchers are not going to be healthy for the entire year. That's just not, you know, if you go into a, a season planning on all five of your arms making 30 starts, you're already behind. Right. Yeah, and I would I would be happy. Whoever is up on the mound, just no more bases loaded walks. If we never Please. saw another bases loaded <laughs> walk again. Yeah, and I'm I've sure you don't want to see those either, right? You talk about extending the length of a game. Yeah, I think we all saw enough last year for the rest of our lives uh, since they broke a new record for that. But you talked about the 17-game win streak. Uh, Josh and I were at number 15, I think, the one that in Chicago, whenever they broke the record. So, um, you know, we had this discussion multiple times. We've had this discussion on Twitter. You know, what part was did it go wrong? Was that Mike Schilt's philosophy? Was that... Um, Albert's philosophy and when it got back on track were they then all of a sudden listening to Jeff Albert do you know any of those inside parts that uh, some of us fans are confused on what exactly went wrong or went right all of the sudden so are we sorry you guys cut out for a second are we talking more about like how the winning streak started and like if there's anything that changed internally well yeah so like yeah. in June you know they were terrible we all know it was historically so terrible so June so, everyone struggled offensively right and then in in uh, August September then it all of a sudden got right and so supposedly there's been chatter that there was a philosophy change Tommy Edmond talked about that they weren't prepared talking about in June and then they started going back to the basics was his quote um, in in September. So whereas going back to the basics Schultz way, was going back to the basics Albert's way, do you know any of those kind of inside things? Because most fans, I think, are confused on what exactly changed and whose side were they changing to? That's a good question, and it's a fair one. Um, and I don't think it was necessarily everyone get on board with Mike Schilt or everybody get on board with Jeff Albert. You know, obviously, not every single coach is going to agree with every single philosophy from a manager and vice versa. However, I think what really changed in June, I mean, the team morale was horrible. Uh, you know, you had no Jack Flaherty, KK Hurts back running the bases, Carlos Martinez gives up like 10 runs and a third of an inning in Dodger Stadium. And there's no bench depth. You have no Tyler O'Neill. You have no Harrison Bader. Nolan Arnauto's slumping, right? So it's so easy to look at the team and just go, well, what changed in June to September? The biggest thing that changed is they got healthy, right? Like Harrison Bader and Tyler O'Neill, when they were healthy, Breakout off-season years, their defense has never been questioned. They seem to be two of the most complete players in the organization. Paul Goldschmidt even was something, and he was probably their most consistent hitter all year long. So they were got healthy in June. Now, when Tommy Edmond references a, a change that was made, it was less of a, like, everyone felt like they needed to be the hero and step up because they were so bad, and it was just spiraling out of control, and they were losing key piece after key piece where each guy individually was taking the responsibility and saying, well, I need to be the one that writes this ship. So they were straying away from their approach, which was Jeff Albert's approach, right, which is, is so simple, and I get a lot of eye rolls, but this is really what it is. And if you ask anyone from the top of the hitters in the major league lineup to some of the up-and-coming guys in the minor leagues, it's pitch selection and driving the ball and hitting the ball hard. So guys would chase. They would chase they would go and kind of in a you know when you're like desperate to save something in life you kind of just desperately flail out and hope that you connect on something that's essentially what that approach got to offensively they were straying away from both approach both Mike Schultz's approach of being patient and working the counts 
and Jeff Albert's approach of finding a pitch that you like and hitting it. They were finding a pitch that they were satisfied with or that, you know, they would jump the gun on because they were so eager to get something going. What that caused was just a bigger spiral where we saw some of the worst baseball Cardinals have played in another decade. What happened was people started getting healthier. And in July, you know, Tyler O'Neill came back, Harrison Bader came back, the pitching staff was kind of getting put back together a little bit. Though they started making small incremental offensive changes that weren't catching up with your eye. It's like when you lose 10 pounds, you don't really notice you're losing the weight at the time. And then all of a sudden, like three months later, you're looking at all pictures of yourself and you're like, oh, this is different. That's what's happening with the offense. From July to August, the organization was slowly shifting back to their previous approach of being patient and finding the right pitches to hit and having solid pitch selection and hitting the ball hard. They were doing it so incrementally that it was really hard to see to the naked eye. And all of a sudden, September, they started clicking and everyone was like, well, where was this all season? It was slowly building up and it takes time. And baseball is such a long and grueling season that over the course of 60 games, you're probably not going to see a big change because they play every day. So it's really hard for these big dramatic changes to show up. That's essentially what happened was they recommitted to an approach and it wasn't Mike Schultz and it wasn't Jeff Alberts and it wasn't Moe's and it wasn't anyone. It was the organization's belief of being patient, really, is what it came down to. Well, I think that's probably good for people to hear because I don't know if you saw yesterday the team announced the coaches returning and everyone was like, wait, Jeff Albert, why? And there's a lot of comments about why Jeff Albert. And I think people put a lot of the blame on him in June but didn't give him the praise in, in September. So I think it's important for people to kind of understand what that is, but uh, we'll move on real quick. I know we're running out of time with you, but um, we had a couple questions on Twitter from Herbie Husker says, Katie, what are some of your favorite moments that you experienced while covering the Cardinals this season? Oh, there's, there's been a lot. There's been a lot of good and a lot of bad because you can learn a lot from good wins and you can learn a lot more from bad losses. Um, but no one really likes to cover a bad loss, right? <laughs> I know you guys don't like it. <laughs> um I think one of my favorite, there's two, and this is cliche, but the home opener at Bush Stadium, Nolan Arnato's first home game as a Cardinal, my first time at Bush Stadium, it's like misty and kind of dreary, and fans are back in the stadium for the first time, and there's just that like newfound optimism that happens in a season, especially on the home opener. Right, Everyone's excited for opening day, but that home opener hits different. Oh, and there's to, nothing to, like it in St. Right? Louis. Oh. There's nothing like that home opener. And there was only like a third capacity crowd there. But when Nolan Arnauto connected on that home run, I didn't know anything about St. Louis, right? I, I kind of felt like a fraud during my first week. I was like, I don't, I've never even been to the stadium. How can I like adequately deliver information to fans about an organization they're so passionate about? But when he connected on that home run, even with only 12,000 fans in that stadium, it like clicked and I understood why this organization cares so much about this sport and why they care so much about their team. And I don't know how to describe it. I don't know how to put it into words, but that home run, I felt like helped me feel like I, I belonged on the beat because I could see how much that moment went to a whole city. Even in the mid, like an April rain, there was like thunder and yep. it was super cold and nobody was really in the stadium. The reaction from the people there just really clicked. And that's when I felt like, you know, if I keep showing up to these games, the fans here will tell me everything I need to know about this organization. Yeah. Then when you fast forward through this, I don't know, whirlwind year, literally the most wild first year I could have ever imagined. And I'm sitting at Wrigley Field, and which is, I think, my favorite road trip ever. It's the 15th game that you guys were there at. It's the double play game. 
and you're oh, watching yeah. that double play unfold and you know as soon as they're in a rundown, as soon as the Cubs get in a rundown, you know that the Cardinals are going to get out of it. To see Harrison Bader sprint in from center field and cover second <laughs> and to see Tyler O'Neill just stand there and take it all in and to know they were going to win the game, that moment I was like, well, I'm never going to see a play like this again. But I knew after that play that not only were they going to win 15, they were going to they were going to like clinch in the next couple of days. They were going to the postseason. I knew it. Um, and that was really cool because to, to just see 15 wins and the way that they won. And of course they win two more after that, but during that winning streak, they just won in the most extreme of ways. And, and to watch that kind of all unfold and, and to realize what that win meant and to what this team was doing, you know, I don't think you'll ever see anything like that again. And I, I, yeah. I think I'm happy that you mentioned both games that I was at and it gave me goosebumps to hear you recant can't those. But, um, you know, for the first time all season in that, in that stretch, it was the first time I felt like seeing Cardinals baseball in years, like the Cardinal way of baseball, because that's what the Cardinals of 2011 and, and 2006 World Series were about, was just getting hot and playing good Cardinal baseball and doing crazy things and winning games. I mean, that was what they did, and that's what was so exciting. All right, one more right. question, one more question, and we'll, and we'll get you out of here. I think. Um, um, go ahead, Josh. You can whatever you want to ask at the end there. Oh yeah, I was just going to ask Katie. Uh, probably some of the more recent news with with all the coaching staff is is Skip Schumacher coming on as uh, the new bench coach, right? I'm not sure. You mm-hmm. mentioned being with the Padres. I, I don't know if he was around when you were there. But what are your thoughts on on Skip coming back to the organization? Because uh, one of the games uh, we talked about earlier, I think we might have mentioned if we didn't, the 2011 World Series reunion game against the Padres. Skip happened to be there, and I was there for that game. Uh, and aside from freeze and probably Chris Carpenter. I think Skip probably got one of the loudest ovations. So he's still very much beloved in St. Louis. What are your thoughts on the Cardinals snagging him from the Padres? It's fantastic. Um, you know, he was the first base coach for the 2018 Padres, so I knew him a little bit there. I texted him congratulations, and, you know, I thought it was kind of funny that we'd be coming full circle um, in, in St. Louis. But this, I think it's a perfect hire. Um, the front office was ecstatic. Um, Mo was really pleased to bring him in. I, I, he, you know, hearing him speak about Schumacher at the GM meetings, you know, he was very, very optimistic about the addition of bringing him to the staff. I think Ollie is certainly qualified. I understand the timing and the, the, the fighting of philosophical differences brings skepticism. So does he. He has a pretty good quote about that in a story that I wrote today about his hiring. And he understands the skepticism from fans about, you know, why he's at this position. But I think what Skip brings in is the knowledge of this organization and how prestigious it is and, and the, the respect and the tradition that it brings. And he also brings an outside knowledge from one of the more analytically developed organizations with the Padres. And yes, they had a huge meltdown. I get it. But when you bring in someone that has both of the, he has three things, right? He has the experience and knowledge of the Cardinals organization. He has an outside perspective of a team that's more modern and how they use their, their staff and their data. And he has the respect of two of the most iconic names in history, let alone the clubhouse, and Adam Wainwright and Yadier Molina. He can really help bridge the gap with a first-year manager. And I know Skip Schumacher doesn't have any major league managerial experience of his own, but when you have someone that has been within the organization and has those things I just talked about, Compared with Ollie, who was really respected by the clubhouse and the coaching staff, I think those two will work really well together. So I think in finalizing the coaching staff, and Turner Ward's a great addition as well, that's, that's huge. And I think bringing Skip in is a great play for the Cardinals to make this early in the offseason, and I think it'll be a great addition. 
All right. I thought of one last question. You can just answer yes or no to this question, but okay. I think it's, no it's it's one that uh, Cardinals are interested in. So last year, 2021, there was only one team in all of baseball that had more than two players on this on their their payroll that made over $25 million. That was the Ryan. Yes, that was the Los Angeles Dodgers. They ended up with six because of trades and all those things. The Cardinals have two currently in 2022. Will the St. Louis Cardinals have a third player that makes over $25 million. What that, That's a shortstop, a pitcher, a DH. Will the St. Louis Cardinals have a third on the roster? A third? Good question. No, because they're going to get stored no. at about $20 million. <laughs> Yeah, there we go. I know, because he's, you know, Mo doesn't spend a lot of money in the offseason, so, so no. no. I'm going to say no. But if I'm wrong, I'm sure Cardinals fans will be happy about that. Absolutely. I'm, I'm wrong a lot, a lot more times than I'm going to admit. So. <laughs> well, Katie, we appreciate it. Thanks for joining us. Katie Wu from The Athletic, uh, Cardinals Insider. Read all our stuff on The Athletic. It's always worth the money. Um, Katie J, at Katie J. Wu on Twitter. Anything else you want to plug? No, that's it. I appreciate you guys. Great podcast. Great questions. Um, and, you know, hopefully it's not a super boring off season. Um, but if it is, you know, happy to jump on anytime. Well, we, we hope you come back on whether it's boring or not so boring off season. So we really, really appreciate sure. it. Yeah, thanks, Katie. Thanks, we appreciate guys. it. Yeah, have a great one. All right, that's it for this week, and that's a winner podcast. We appreciate you listening every week. Uh, be sure to follow us on Twitter at That's a Winner Pod. And we look forward to talking to you again next week. Thanks for joining us on That's a Winner Podcast. From the belt to the plate, a swing and a miss, and that's a winner. That's a winner. A World Series.